The Navy SEALs hell weekends with one recruit dead, another hospitalized. They were not actively training when they somehow became sickened or ill. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The reasons behind San Diego's increasing police officer vacancies. More and more people are quitting jobs that they're not happy in, and employers are then struggling to backfill those positions with new hires. It's happening all across the economy, and of course, police departments are not immune to those factors. A study predicts more blackouts as summer temperatures continue to rise. And the Jewish Film Festival kicks off with a loving portrait of a poet. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the National Conflict Resolution Center. Topics like political polarization and hybrid work policies can create workplace conflict. NCRC can help workplace leaders navigate divisive issues with the culture, communication, and conflict certificate. More at ncrconline.com. The Navy has identified the SEAL candidate who died Friday after going through the final phase of Navy SEAL training known as Hell Week. 24-year-old Kyle Mullen reported unidentified symptoms hours after the training ended and subsequently died. A second SEAL candidate also reported symptoms and is hospitalized. The Navy says Kyle Mullen's cause of death is currently under investigation. Joining me is KPBS military and veterans reporter Steve Walsh. Steve, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Tell us what's known about when these two SEAL candidates began feeling sick and what their symptoms were. We don't really know much more than what has come out in a couple of different uh, press releases and a few clarifications from the, from the SEALs themselves. We know that they had uh, just finished Hell Week that morning. That's that five and a half days where SEALs are often in almost constant motion. They get very little sleep. They're, they're wet the, the whole time, often treading water, which, you know, this time of year is about 57 degrees. They uh, finished Hell Week that morning. They were not actively training when they somehow became sickened or ill. Both candidates were transported in the same ambulance at the same time late in the afternoon at 541. Kyle Mullins died at Scripps Coronado, which is the closest hospital to Bud's. And then that second unnamed candidate, he's in stable condition at uh, the Naval Hospital in San Diego. Then that's about what we know. You referred to BUDS. What is that? So that's basic underwater demolition SEALs. That's basically SEAL basic training. No matter whether SEALs are stationed on the East or West Coast, everybody comes to BUDS here in San Diego for their basic training. Is it clear that the illness was related to the physical demands of Hell Week? You know, we just don't know from what they've told us so far. You know, SEALs typically don't say very much, and that can lead to a lot of speculation. We know there are a lot of uh, training accidents at BUDS. It's incredibly physically and mentally demanding. Candidates routinely begin hallucinating after days without sleep. Things like hyperthermia and pneumonia come to mind. We've seen cases of heart defects that weren't found in screening physicals. The fact that two of them were transported seems to make it less likely that it was some sort of a heart defect. But, you know, we don't really know very much about exactly what was happening at that time. Can you tell us a little more of what Hell Week is like and what the SEALs go through? It's week four of BUDS, part of the first phase of SEAL training. It's well-named. 
you have five and a half days of physical exertion out on Coronado. You know, you can actually watch the seals carrying those rib boats along the strand on top of their heads. They do that for hours well into the night. They tread water in the surf for hours well into the night again. People fall asleep while paddling. They fall asleep during meals. It's designed to be incredibly grueling. Instructors with bullhorns will taunt the candidates, you know, telling them to give up and go home. And do many SEALs actually give up, drop out of training during Hell Week? Indeed. You know, the SEALs say on average, 70 to 80 percent of the candidates drop out of BUDS. Most of those dropouts will happen during Hell Week. You know, it's by design. You know, this isn't like a really hard physics class at Harvard. You know, if you score high enough, you pass. The SEALs bring in more candidates than they need with the intention of weeding out most people, even highly qualified people. By doing it this way, the SEALs believe they end up with the candidates with the the most mental toughness. Has there been any effort to revise SEAL training and Hell Week to make it less dangerous? There have. I mean, they've switched some things around. Hell Week has moved around in the calendar to give cadets more time to get into shape. There's been more oversight, but the instructors are, are, are basically working SEALs. They do a tour at Buzz and then, then they go back into the field. So the SEALs are unusual in special forces. Uh, by the time you become part of like Delta Force, you're an elite member of the U.S. Army. But many, if not most SEALs, come from outside the Navy. They go to boot camp. And then they go right into buds. Kyle Mullins was 24 years old, but he had been in the Navy for less than a year. He was a star athlete in New Jersey. You know, many SEALs are college wrestlers rather than top performing sailors. They start uh, training on their own well before they arrive at buds. And then there's a whole industry designed to help people get ready. So, you know, there have been many changes to it, but still, you know, this is an elite force and very separate from the rest of what goes on in the Navy. Who is likely to be held responsible if this death is linked to Hell Week training? Is anyone? Well, the Navy is responsible for anything that happens at BUDS, but uh, we'll have to see uh, from the reports. In the case of, uh, of, of uh, James Loveless, uh, who uh, died early on in BUDS during the first week, uh, the medical examiner initially ruled it a homicide after a videotape showed that the BUDS instructor pushed Lovelace under the water, which they're not supposed to do. Lovelace, though, also had an enlarged heart, so ultimately the instructor was was never prosecuted. And that was back in 2016, right? Back in 2016. And there was also a suicide right around the same time. Is it clear that the Navy will release information about this death and hospitalization, or will it just be kept away from the public? Eventually, something will have to come out. There are reports that are foyable, but um, the SEALs are incredibly secretive. Um, we'll see. They say that they're not, they're not going to say anything more until those reports come out. Um, we're not expecting any sort of press conference or anything else. We're just going to have to stay on this one. I've been speaking with KPBS military and veterans reporter Steve Walsh. And Steve, thank you so much. Thanks, Maureen. The San Diego Police Department is sounding the alarm over staffing issues, citing recruitment problems, impending retirements, and the city's vaccine mandate as key reasons behind the increasing vacancies. 
Despite that, the growing shortage of officers has others questioning the significant role that police play in interactions with the homeless and how that might also be stretching the resources of the department then. Joining me now with more is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, welcome back to the program. Hi, Jade. Thanks. So what's the police department saying about why there are so many vacancies? Well, I think we should keep in mind what's going on in the entire economy right now. We're calling it the Great Resignation. So more and more people are quitting jobs that they're not happy in, and employers are then struggling to backfill those positions with new hires. It's happening all across the economy, and I think, you know, of course, police departments are not immune to those factors. The city's vaccine mandate, that does appear to play some role in this. Uh, I think it's impossible to say exactly how big of a role it's playing, given the larger economic context right now. But we do know that the police union tried to fight this vaccine mandate, even though it ultimately got passed by the city council. But, you know, officers appear more resistant to that policy, at least compared with other city employees. And then beyond those economic forces, beyond the vaccine mandate, this police department that we have is also relatively old. There are hundreds of officers that are eligible for retirement in the coming years. And as those retirements are sort of trickling in, um, that's, of course, then just putting extra pressure on the police department staffing challenges. Much of the current issues surrounding the shortages have been attributed to the city's vaccine mandate. While that's a fairly new policy, the department's retention issues are old. Uh, What can you tell us about that? So police recruitment and retention was a really big topic in the early to mid-2010s. And so it got to a point where the wages that the police department was offering were just very far behind other agencies in this area. So it was very easy to get hired by the San Diego Police Department, gain a couple of years experience, and then switch to, say, the Sheriff's Department or Chula Vista Police or La Mesa, Escondido, any of these other neighboring uh, cities where they're offering better pay and benefits to their officers. So um, this The city and the police union agreed to a series of raises in 2017, and that had a significant impact on the recruitment and retention issues. The number of officers employed by the city had been increasing for several years pretty much since then. But now, given all these other factors that we've talked about, it appears to be backsliding. The staffing shortage is also having an impact on police department spending. What's happening there? Police are having to authorize more and more hours of overtime for officers to cover their staffing shortages. So the current estimate is that they're going to spend $6.9 million more on overtime than what they had budgeted for. And this is coming after Mayor Todd Gloria had actually cut the overtime budget in the police department as a gesture to activists that wanted to spend less on police and more on social programs like libraries and parks. Um, I reported back in December how that gesture of cutting the police department overtime budget really fell apart in a matter of just a few months. And now we're looking at ending the fiscal year again, like I said, about $7 million over budget on police officer overtime. You know, news of these shortages has really revived an ongoing debate also about what role the police play in complaints related to homelessness. Can you give us a sense of how these issues are connected? For several years now, the police have been given more and more responsibilities related to homelessness. So if we go back to 2017, when San Diego was dealing with this hepatitis A outbreak, which primarily hit the homeless population, then Mayor Kevin Faulkner wanted to prove that he was doing something about this problem. So the police have been playing a larger role in the homeless encampment sweeps, providing security. And then, you know, as part of this whole response to the challenges with homelessness, Faulkner also 
also created the Neighborhood Policing Division, and its responsibilities have grown significantly, especially now that people can report issues related to homelessness on the city's Get It Done app. So in the same way you can report a pothole or graffiti on public property, you can report something related to homelessness, and every report has to get followed up on, even if there is no crime being committed. So somebody might report a homeless person hanging out in my neighborhood or in this park or in front of this business, and they just want that person to go away. Our city's response is we send a police officer there to deal with it. Has there been any discussion among local lawmakers about how resources should be shifted to better accommodate issues involving the city's homeless population? Well, I came across this story watching last week's City Council Budget Committee uh, hearing, and Council President Sean Ilo Rivera was asking some of these very questions. He's saying, if we're facing a rise in 911 calls, a rise in violent crime, and also these staffing shortages, can some of these calls about homelessness be handled by civilians? Why not restructure the San Diego Police Department and shift some of these positions from the Neighborhood Policing Division to where officers are most needed with the patrol division? and things they're actually handling this rise in violent crime. In an interview uh, with the council president, he also noted there's pretty much universal agreement on the left and on the right and the center that police are just not the best people equipped to handle homelessness. There are social workers, people especially trained in mental health or addiction, who might be more effective at reaching that unsheltered population and handling these calls. It's not to say police will never be needed, but he's saying I think that we should should look for ways to reduce the police role in managing the homeless crisis as much as possible so that they can get to the job that they were really hired for, which is responding to violence and crime. To that point, do the police have much say in whether or not they respond to calls involving the homeless? I mean, are people generally aware of the alternatives out there? It's ultimately the police chief's decision to assign, you know, officers where the the policymakers have set their priorities. We do have what's called the Psychiatric Emergency Response Team, which is funded by the county. Uh, These are clinicians that are deployed to mental health calls. So in those cases, there's a clinician who would make first contact with that individual rather than a police officer. So there's these PERT teams, but they're always accompanied by police officers. So increasing the use of the psychiatric emergency response teams isn't necessarily going to relieve the staffing concerns in the police department. We also have just recently created new mobile crisis response teams, and these are unarmed civilians who are responding to calls typically related to homelessness, but they're not accompanied by police. And so that is one sort of area where I think the city and the county together are trying to invest some dollars and see if there's a different model that works. But there was some interesting comments from police chief David Nislight in last week's meeting where he kind of dismissed these new teams that don't have any police going along with them as a a solution to this. And he really pushed the PERT model, which does use police and, you know, increasing those wouldn't necessarily be relieving his officers from any of their other duties. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Jade. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu.
You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. It's officially been two years since San Diego County's first exposure to COVID-19. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman says local attention was focused on the Marine Corps Air Station Miramar, which was drafted for a unique mission. Do you like the park? Yes. Yeah. Is it better than the hospital? Yes. Yeah. Two years ago, Frank Wusinski and his then three-year-old daughter Annabelle were among those evacuated from Wuhan, China and put into quarantine at MCAS Miramar. It's a good thing that we did that. But on the other hand, you know, there's a feeling of guilt that I've left, I left my wife in probably the worst time of her life. Wusinski's wife had to stay in China and the two-week quarantine, which included a hospital visit, was not easy on their daughter Annabelle. In her mind, uh, it's, it's mommy not wanting to see her. Just kind of explain as simply as you can is, you know, mommy misses you, mommy loves you. The dad and daughter were flown into San Diego on unmarked planes. Some of more than 200 Americans and their families quarantined inside of base hotel rooms. For San Diegans, it was their first local experience with coronavirus. I think most people were just confused and trying to understand what is this all about. Then County Supervisor's board chair, Greg Cox, says he wasn't sure what to expect. It's one of these things you're kind of figuring, well, is this just kind of a a passing problem? I mean, we had problems with swine flu, with uh, H1N1, uh, and those were just kind of Ebola. Those are just kind of blips on the on the radar screen that, okay, you know, people were kind of following what was going on, but... uh, For the most part, it never impacted their lives. And and now this was something that looked like it was potentially going to be much bigger. And as it turned out, it certainly was. If anyone got sick, they were not allowed to stay at MCAS Miramar. The county's chief medical officer, Dr. Eric McDonald, was in charge of figuring out care locally. We knew it was a big deal because this was something that had not been done in 50 years. I mean, literally, uh, large-scale federal quarantine like this. What I remember was when we first got the call that maybe San Diego might be a location, uh, I was like, why us? You know, and then I was trying to think of how can we get out of this, okay? Uh, But then we quickly figured out, oh no, this is where it's going to be. McDonald ended up asking UC San Diego Health and Rady Children's Hospital to be ready if anyone tested positive. Seven patients were ultimately taken to UCSD and Rady's. Officials remember the scene when the first patients arrived. They were given a police escort and were flanked by CDC officials. Of those seven that developed symptoms, two tested positive. They were the 13th and 14th cases of COVID in the U.S. You uh, assume the worst, that is the most contagious, and you work down from there. UC San Diego Health's Dr. Francesca Torriani helped coordinate care for the seven patients. You could see really the the worry of, of some of of being not welcomed and and of of really being afraid. Torriani says they knew it was a respiratory virus, but they were unclear how easily it could spread, so the patients were put inside special negative pressure rooms that were designed for contagious Ebola patients. We were at the maximum containment. The safety protocols worked. No staff members ended up contracting the virus, and while one patient did have an experimental treatment, everyone left the hospital okay. All of the evacuees ended up leaving the base before March came, and then we started seeing cases among local residents. McDonald says there were some valuable lessons learned during the federal quarantine, like how to safely transport COVID-positive patients. So I got our pre-hospital system kind of geared up to be able to handle that, uh, all the way to just the logistics of how to support uh, a lot of people in one place who are on quarantine 
with food, with housing, with social service support. Toriani says for some of the patients, there was a language barrier, but she was focused on making them feel welcome so far away from home. Asking them what kind of food did they want would help them, you know, giving them hot water and a, and a teapot so that they could find some humanity. That was so touching and so important. During the quarantine period, the San Diego community showed their support. Military spouses organized food, toy, and book donations. Some local schools even sent in Valentine's Day cards. This early COVID experience helped prepare San Diego officials when, just a few weeks later, cruise ship passengers had to be quarantined, and then unsheltered residents were isolated at the convention center. Matt Hoffman, KPBS News. All over the world, climate change is starting to affect daily life, from devastating cyclones in Madagascar to firestorms in the Pacific Northwest. And a new report finds that all over the U.S., as summers get hotter, beating the heat will drain energy supplies and leave us with days without power or air conditioning. The research paper published in the online journal Earth's Future predicts Southern California will experience at least seven days without power each summer in the next decade. Joining me is the study's lead author, Renee Obringer, an environmental engineer at Penn State University. And Renee, welcome to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. How would a 1.5 Celsius rise in global temperature, and that works out to 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, how would that strain California's energy grid? Yeah, so uh, one and a half degrees Celsius increase is sort of across the global mean temperature. And so depending on the location or even like the if there's a heat wave, it could be, you know, even higher for California. And so what we're seeing is that with those rising temperatures that California is expected to see a 4% increase in air conditioning use beyond what they're already doing. And that, if it occurs during a heat wave or during wildfire season, it could actually lead to rolling blackouts even more frequent than what we've seen in the last couple of years. How many days of rolling blackouts could there be in California under these circumstances? So our analysis looked at the hypothetical situation where no changes are made to our current grid. So it's kind of the worst case scenario. What happens if we don't adapt to this warmer future? And we found that California could experience about seven days uh, without air conditioning under these um, potentially rolling blackouts, but also uh, could be more lengthy blackouts going beyond just a couple hours and lasting for you know a day or two at a time. You also note one thing going for California is that we have comparatively high efficiency standards for home air conditioners. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so one of the potential ways that we could mitigate this uh, increase in demand is to try to improve how efficient our technology is. So when you increase the efficiency of air conditioners, you can use more air conditioning, you can use it more often, but it uses the same amount or even less electricity. And so we looked to see how much more efficient the standard air conditioner would need to be across the states. And we found that with California, it's less than 1% more efficient. So it's almost uh, negligible. And that's likely because California is leading the country in these requirements. So any new building and even some older buildings that are getting retrofitted need to have 
a certain standard of efficiency. And that's driving uh, the market in California, whereas other states are sort of are behind in that respect. And so um, states, we found that Louisiana and Arkansas, up to 8% increase in the average air conditioner, whereas California, like I said, less than 1%. Now, when does your study predict summer blackouts like these would start to happen? So that sort of time period has a little bit of you know, wiggle room. It, a lot of it depends on how quickly we can do climate change mitigation and if we continue to emit CO2. But the most recent IPCC report is estimating that we will surpass that one and a half degree Celsius threshold in the 2030s. So potentially 10 to 15 years from now. And how does the scenario change if there's a two degree Celsius increase in warming? Yeah, so that is actually what I think is one of the most interesting parts of the study is that with just a half degree more warming, we're seeing really uh, intense changes, particularly in areas like the Midwest. And so under one and a half degrees of warming, we estimated a 4% increase in air conditioning use. But if we let climate change continue to happen and we continue to emit to the point where we get to two degrees of warming, then in the Midwest, their air conditioning demand jumps up by 13%. And so we're tripling how much more of a change we're seeing in just one half of a degree. And so it really, like sort of for me, it brings home the importance of trying to mitigate temperature and trying to maintain a lower temperature threshold because we'll start to see increasingly extreme uh, results from just minor temperature changes as we continue to get warmer. What would be the human toll of these summer days without power? Yeah, so it's hard to sort of quantify that, but what we know is that when we have really extreme heat, that the most vulnerable populations tend to be in lower income neighborhoods or the elderly or even um, other marginalized groups that have traditionally lived in areas with poor housing or just generally don't have the capacity to, or the financial ability to purchase air conditioning or find another place like a hotel or a, a pool where they can cool off during these heat waves. So while it's really hard to quantify what it might mean in exact numbers, what we do know is that Although the average household might experience, you know, eight days without air conditioning, in reality, the brunt of that is going to be faced by our vulnerable or marginalized communities, while others can find other places to go. As you say, some people in uh, lower income communities may not even have air conditioning to mm -hmm. begin with. And as that heat rises, people can die. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's uh, becomes a very serious public health issue. And it also, it, and it becomes really hard to, to calculate that, like the deaths because of heat, heat waves, heat intensity are probably very underestimated because it's really hard to figure out, you know, was it the heat or was it, you know, some other comorbidity that they had often due to, you know, no fault of their own, just where they happen to live and whether or not we can attribute that to heat or not. 
Renee, what does this study call for? Does it call for increased efforts to stop global warming or stronger energy grids to handle increased demand? It's both. And so what we really want is part of our goal in looking at sort of the household uh, level air conditioning use, but also trying to look at across the U.S. to compare different states is to, to try to demonstrate that these changes, these impacts of climate change will impact local people, like they'll impact yourself and your family and your neighbors. And so we're, our hope is that if we can show some tangible like impacts to how it might affect you rather than something abstract that's off in the far future, that we might generate some more like grassroots effort and, and try to get some policy passed to not only uh, mitigate climate change and reduce our emissions, but also strengthen our grid because we can't just rely on one or the other. We need to be adapting, but also working towards mitigation at the same time. I've been speaking with Renee Obringer, an environmental engineer at Penn State University. Renee, thank you so much. Thank you. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. The Old Globe Theater just opened a production of Alice Childress's play Trouble in Mind, set in New York in 1957. The play revolves around a leading Black actress and a diverse cast who, in the story, are rehearsing a new play written by a white playwright. It's a play within a play. I'm joined by the director of the Old Globe's production of Trouble in Mind, Delicia Turner Sonnenberg, who is also one of the Globe's current resident artists. Delicia, welcome. Thank you. And also joining us is actor, storyteller, and playwright B.B. Mama, one of the actors in the production. B.B., welcome. Hello, thank you. So this work is a play within a play. Our characters are taking part in a play written by a white playwright, put on by a white director, but it features a multiracial cast and it's an anti-lynching story. Delicia, what are some of the conflicts that this play brings forward? This play examines, uh, it uses the play within a play format to examine stereotypes and race and the limits of understanding between a white producing team and and black performers as they begin rehearsal um and who gets to this this idea and this is important to me as a director or as an artist in general of who's the final word on somebody else's story right i mean they're telling um an anti-lynching story with a white playwright 
And when a black actor asks questions about that story or the truths in that story, her questions get dismissed. Yeah. And Alice Childress wrote this script nearly 67 years ago. Delicia, what can you tell us about the history of this play? I mean, do we have a sense today about how it was received by theaters and audiences? Well, in 55, it appeared off-Broadway, and then it was going to be on Broadway, and Alice Childress went through two years of rewrites because the producers loved the play, the Broadway producers, but they wanted her to change the ending. Um, and so she changed the ending, but then she changed it back. And so ultimately it didn't make it to Broadway. Mm. So let's get to know some of these characters. Um, we have Willetta Mayer, the main character and the lead in the play within a play uh, performed by Ramona Keller. And then Millie Davis, who's a younger actress in the production performed by B.B. Mama. Uh, B.B., tell us uh, a little bit about your character and what's on the line for her in this story. That's a great question. Millie is bright and fun and charismatic and um, I think is really excited to be performing on Broadway and performing um, this show with these people and is also aware of the stereotypes that are present not only in this play, but in, in the work that she's done in the past and sort of just takes it on the chin, you know, is happy to be working, happy to be in the room. However, when Willita starts to uh, bring voice to some of um, the problems that uh, arise when they start working with the script. I think Millie, um, her eyes are, are open and she really starts to, you know, support and and understand that, you know, what what is on the line. However, that con that conflicts with her desire to like do the job and be employed and pay the bills. So it's a really interesting conflict. Mm. Do you recognize any parts of your own acting journey in Millie's story? Ooh. Uh, I think so. I think so. Um, I've definitely... Uh, Millie is really cool because she she speaks her mind. Um, and th there have been, been times where I found myself questioning uh, the work I was doing or like the way we were doing the work and having to, you know, find the balance between how much do you say, um, but also like how much do you uh, hold your tongue in order to preserve relationships or, or the work that you're doing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, definitely. Indeed. Uh, Delicia, you have been directing and working in theater in San Diego for a long time. Um, what's something you look for in a script? I mean, is there a moment when you're reading a play and, and you know you just have to work on it? When I'm reading a script, uh, my, I always trust my first instinct. And I, I, I'm a director who's moved by words. So I love poetry. So I'm, when I, in a play, I love um, the way the playwright uses language to reveal ideas or um, deeper truths. Um, I also love bold characters. And, um, and I look for work that is smart and um, surprising. 
I love to be surprised in the theater. In my personal life, not so much, but in in my work, I love surprises. And as an audience member viewing theater, I love it when a when a play, when I think a story is going one way and it and something happens. Yeah, the plot twist there is always um, interesting. Uh, and not know. just plot twists, but real true, a character that I think I have a bead on that does something that is completely surprising, that explodes in, um, into some truths. And that is what I love about Trouble in Mind. Like we're watching a comedy until we're not. Hmm. And BB, you know, the theater saw a tremendous reckoning over the last few years about race and diversity. Um, but did real change happen? I mean, 67 years uh, later, um, is this still something that clouds the American theater? I, I think so. Absolutely. When I read Trouble in Mind, it was painfully clear. We need to hear this story now. Um, and I think it says a lot that almost 67 years later, the conflicts in this this play are conflicts that we are still dealing with today, showing us that they haven't been resolved, which means that we have to keep talking about them. And I think that this, this play is an incredible conversation starter. starter. I think it's really bravely written um, and really opened up the eyes and, and give some perspective to the people who get the opportunity to see it. And I'm going to agree with B everything that BB said. Um, it, it's interesting because one of the people in the room, um, in our rehearsal room, asked me if this play had been updated. And it made me thrilled that the audience was going to see a play that is still relevant, but also sad that the questions that this play asked 67 years ago are still questions that we're asking today. Mm -hmm. The Old Globe's production of Trouble in Mind runs through March 13th. I've been speaking with the play's director, Delicia Turner Sonnenberg, and actor B.B. Mama. Thank you both. Thank, Thank you. you. The San Diego International Jewish Film Festival returns this Wednesday with both in-person and virtual screenings. One of the opening films is the documentary Who Will Remain, which looks at the Yiddish poetry of Avram Sutzkever. The film uses his granddaughter as a gateway to a very intimate portrait. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with the film's co-directors Emily Felder and Krista P. Whitney. Krista, to start off, tell us a little bit about the Yiddish Book Center and what role it played in having this film made. Yeah, well, that's that's a great question. So the Yiddish Book Center, first of all, is a nonprofit committed to preserving and promoting Yiddish and modern Jewish culture. And uh, the film really comes out of the Yiddish Book Center quite directly. Emily and I were both working at the Yiddish Book Center when we started working on this film, and I still work there. And so the Yiddish Book Center is the producer of, of the film, specifically the Yiddish Book Center's Wexler Oral History Project, which is a growing collection of in-depth video oral histories about Yiddish language and culture. 
Now, we live in a culture right now where people seem to be concerned only with the things immediately around them and everything that's very present and recent. So talk a little bit about the challenges of holding on to some of these elements of Yiddish culture uh, in this kind of an environment. My daily life is uh, is really looking both at at the past and how it directly influences the present in terms of Yiddish language and culture. But Yiddish culture, it's something that there weren't a lot of documents online. You know, nowadays, people think everything is on Google. Everything is online. And uh, things that are not Googleable are considered not to exist by some people. But of course, that's not true. So the Yiddish Book Center's work is in part becoming a digital address for Yiddish culture. You can find on the Yiddish Book Center's website all kinds of historical archives. The Yiddish Book Center has digitized over 11,000 Yiddish books. So I think the work of me and my colleagues and really filmmakers and and cultural workers in this space is to create an awareness of the importance and uh, to build interest in this culture that is really a whole world. Emily, Who Will Remain focuses in particular on one Yiddish poet and his granddaughter. And it's not only about him, but this kind of family relationship as well. How did you get involved in this project and kind of what was important to you in structuring it? Just a little bit about my background. I studied anthropology at the University of Massachusetts, and I knew that I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker, but I really wanted a foundation in social sciences and humanities. So I was incredibly drawn to historical archaeology and visual ethnography, which basically means how we access the past and how we reconstruct historical narratives with objects and landscapes in the present. So this film was really a perfect intersection. I really fell in love with the project, with the Yiddish language. I'm a Jewish woman, so it really reacquainted me with an entire world that I didn't really know anything about. So what began as just a temporary role quickly transformed into this really significant position, both professionally and personally. Regarding your question about how to approach editing and this particular story, Who Will Remain?, It was really emotional to sift through some of the more harrowing Holocaust materials and to have to make a choice as to which image is both appropriate and evocative without being exploitative. So even though this film is about Sutzkever, I didn't want to paint him as like a brilliant hero or a main character whose survival was more dramatically worthy to examine, as if he risked more or faced greater hurdles than the other six million Jews who perished. I wanted to center him, and I think Krista would agree, we wanted to center him as an artist, as well as a ghetto partisan who was lucky enough to escape. So yes, this is truly a dramatic story, and his poetry is defiant, but he arguably always found refuge in his poetry. And that's kind of the point of this film is, you know, in the ghetto, it became his ultimate artistic sanctuary. And so this was just a continuation of his innate creative expression. And so in the editing room, painting 
that kind of portrait of a person within the context of the the Holocaust uh, was challenging enough. And then we had to incorporate how Hadass tries to access her grandfather, how, you know, his story and how anyone could make sense of the Holocaust. So it was emotionally challenging, technically challenging, narratively challenging, but I think our film really developed into this compelling call and response, actually, between Sutzkever and Hadass. It wasn't just about him. And how would you describe his poetry for someone who's not familiar with it? He's described by, by Hadass in the film as a nature poet and by other literary scholars. I mean, there is a very um, a sense of grounding in the natural world. He was born in Smorgon, but grew up in Omsk in Siberia. And so in his own, even in his own narrative of his artistic life, he talks about how those early images of the snow drifts and this just landscape uh, was a foundational inspiration for him. And I think you can see that through his whole body of work, the way that he, he uses metaphor and animates objects, uh, plants and uh, rocks even in the landscape. I'm not a literary scholar, though I did study literature in my undergraduate degree, so I think there's certainly some modernism in there. But one thing that I think was interesting to learn for me uh, with the background in literary studies is that he himself talks about how he, though he was very well read in Polish literature and Lithuanian literature, and he didn't really have a concept of Jewish literature when he began writing. And I think that's interesting because because he he just sort of started he you know he was inspired to begin writing and in a way i think that makes it hard to pin him to a particular poetic or literary movement yeah as as i think every, every poet's poetry is really their own but i i think for him you you have those uh, particular influences i want to thank you both very much for talking about who will remain thanks thank you that was Beth Accomando speaking with filmmakers Emily Felder and Krista P. Whitney. Who Will Remain will have an in-person this Thursday, followed by online screenings at the San Diego International Jewish Film Festival. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.